0: section 10 of memoirs of the court of queen elizabeth the slipriverox recording is in the public domain memoirs of the court of queen elizabeth volumes 1 and 2 by lucy aiken chapter 7 1554 and 1555 part 2 during the period that the princess was thus industriously secluded from conversation with any but the few attendants who had been allowed to remain about her person her correspondence was not less watchfully restricted we are told that when after urgent application to the council she had at length been permitted to write to the queen beddingfield looked over her as she wrote took the paper into his own keeping when she paused and brought it back to her when she chose to resume her task yet could not his utmost precaution entirely cut off her communications with the large and zealous party who rested upon her all their hopes of better times for themselves or for the country through the medium of a visitor to one of her ladies she received the satisfactory assurance that none of the prisoners for Wyatt's business had been brought to utter anything by which she could be endangered perhaps it was with immediate reference to this intelligence that she wrote with a diamond on her window the homely but expressive distich much suspected by me nothing proved can be quoth elizabeth prisoner but these secret intelligencers were not always fortunate enough to escape detection of which the consequences were rendered very grievous through the arbitrary severity of mary's government and the peculiar malice exercised by gardiner against the adherents of the princess sir john harrington son to the gentleman of the same name formerly mentioned as a follower of admiral seymour thus in his brief view of the church sums up the character of this celebrated bishop of winchester with reference to this part of his conduct Quote, lastly the plots he laid to entrap the lady elizabeth and his terrible hard usage of all her followers i cannot yet scarce think of with charity nor write of with patience my father for only carrying a letter to the lady elizabeth and professing to wish her well he kept in the tower twelve months and made him spend a thousand pounds ere he could be free of that trouble my mother that then served the lady elizabeth he caused to be sequestered from her as a heretic insomuch that her own father durst not take her into his house but she was glad to sojourn with one Mr. Topcliffe. So, as I may say, in some sort, this bishop persecuted me before I was born. In the twelfth month of his imprisonment, this unfortunate Harrington, having previously sent to the bishop many letters and petitions for liberty without effect, had the courage to address to him a sonnet, which his son has cited as quote, no ill verse for those unrefined times, End quote. A modest commendation of lines so spirited, which the taste of the more modern reader, however fastidious, need not hesitate to confirm. Quote, to Bishop Gardiner. 1. At least withdraw your cruelty, or force the time to work your will. It is too much extremity to keep me pent in prison still, free from all fault, void of all cause, without all right, against all laws. How can you do more cruel spite than prefer wrong and promise right? nor can accuse, nor will acquite. 2. Eleven months past and longer space I have abode your devilish drifts, while you have sought both man and place and set your snares with all your shifts, the faultless foot to wrap in while with any guilt by any guile. And now you see that will not be, how can you thus for shame agree to keep him bound you should set free? 3. Your chance was once as mine is now to keep this hold against your will, and then you swear you well know how though now you swerve i know how ill but thus this world his course doth pass the priest forgets a clerk he was and you that have cried justice still and now have justice at your will rest justice wrong against all skill four but why do i thus coldly plain as if it were my cause alone when cause doth each man so constrain as england through hath cause to moan to see your bloody search of such As all the earth can no way touch. And better were that all your kind, Like hounds in hell with shame, were shrined, Than you add might unto your mind. 5. But as the stone that strikes the wall Sometimes bounds back on the hurler's head, So your foul fetch to your foul fall may turn, And noy the breast that bred. And then such measure as you gave Of right and justice look to have, If good or ill, if short or long, if false or true, if right or wrong, and thus till then I end my song. End Such were the trials and sufferings which exercised the fortitude of Elizabeth and her faithful followers during her deplorable abode at Woodstock. Mary meanwhile was wrapped in fond anticipations of the felicity of her married life with a prince for whom, on the sight of his picture, she is said to have conceived the most violent passion. The more strongly her people expressed their aversion and dread of the Spanish match, the more vehemently did she show herself bent on its conclusion. And having succeeded in suppressing by force the formidable rebellion to which the first report of such a union had given birth, she judged it unnecessary to employ any of those arts of popularity to which her disposition was naturally adverse, for conciliating to herself or her destined spouse the goodwill of her subjects. After many delays which severely tried her temper, the arrival of the Prince of Spain at Southampton was announced to the expecting Queen, who went as far as Winchester to meet him, in which city Gardiner blessed their nuptials on July the twenty-seventh, 1554. The royal pair passed in state through London a few days after, and the city exhibited by command the outward tokens of rejoicing customary in that age. Bonfires were kindled in the open places, tables spread in the streets at which all passers-by might freely regale themselves with liquor. Every parish sent forth its procession singing Te Deum, the fine cross in Cheapside was beautified and newly gilt, and pageants were set up in the principal streets. But there was little gladness of heart among the people, and one of these festal devices gave occasion to a manifestation of the dispositions of the court respecting religion, which filled the citizens with grief and horror. A large picture had been hung over the conduit in Gracechurch Street, representing the nine worthies, and among them King Henry VIII made his appearance, according to former drafts of him, holding in his hand a book on which was inscribed, Verbum Dei. This accompaniment gave so much offence that Gardiner sent for the painter, and after chiding him severely ordered that a pair of gloves should be substituted for the Bible. Religion had already been restored to the state in which it remained at the death of Henry, but this was by no means sufficient to satisfy the conscience of the Queen, which required the entire restoration in all its parts of the ancient church establishment. It had been, in fact, one of the first acts of her reign to forward to Rome a respectful embassy which conveyed to the sovereign pontiff her recognition of the supremacy of the Holy See, and a petition that he would be pleased to invest with the character of his legate for England, Cardinal Pole, that earnest champion of her own legitimacy and the Church's unity, who had been for so many years the object of her father's bitterest animosity. Mary's precipitate zeal had received some check in this instance from the worldly policy of the Emperor Charles V, who either entertaining some jealousy of the influence of Pole with the Queen, or at least judging it fit to secure the great point of his son's marriage before the patience of the people of England should be proved by the arrival of a papal legate, had impeded the journey of the cardinal by a detention of several weeks in his court at Brussels. But no sooner was Philip in secure possession of his bride than Pole was suffered to proceed on his mission. The Parliament, which met early in November 1555, reversed the attainder which had laid him under sentence of death and on the 24th of the same month he was received at court with great solemnity, and with every demonstration of affection on the part of his royal cousin. From this period the cause of popery proceeded triumphantly, a reign of terror commenced, and the government gained fresh strength and courage by every exertion of the tyrannic power which it had assumed. After the married clergy had been reduced to give up either their wives or their benefices, and the Protestant bishops deprived, and many of them imprisoned, without exciting any popular commotion in their behalf, the Court became emboldened to propose in Parliament a solemn reconciliation of the country to the Papal See. A House of Commons more obsequious than the former acceded to the motion, and on November 29th the legate formally absolved the nation from all ecclesiastical censures, and readmitted it within the pale of the Church. The ancient statutes against heretics were next revived, and the violent counsels of Gardiner proving more acceptable to the Queen than the milder ones of Pole, a furious persecution was immediately set on foot. Bishops Hooper and Rogers were the first victims. Saunders and Taylor, two eminent divines, succeeded, upon all of whom Gardiner pronounced sentence in person, after which he resigned to Bonner, his more brutal but not more merciless colleague, the inglorious task of dragging forth to punishment the heretics of inferior note and humbler station in the midst however of his barbarous proceedings of which london was the principal theatre the bench of bishops thought proper in solemn assembly to declare that they had no part in such severities and philip who shrank from the odium of the very deeds most grateful to his savage soul caused a spanish friar his confessor to preach before him in praise of toleration and to show that christians could bring no warrant from scripture for shedding the blood of their brethren on account of religious differences but justly apprehensive that so extraordinary a declaration of opinion from such a person might not of itself suffice to establish in the minds of the english that character of lenity and moderation which he found it his interest to acquire he determined to add some few deeds to words about the close of the year fifteen fifty four sir nicholas throgmorton robert dudley and all the other prisoners on account of the usurpation of jane grey or the insurrection of wyatt were liberated at the intercession as was publicly declared of king philip and he soon after employed his good offices in the cause of two personages still more interesting to the feelings of the nation the princess elizabeth and the earl of devonshire it is worth while to estimate the value of these boasted acts of generosity with regard to courtenay it may be sufficient to observe that a close investigation of facts had proved him to have been grateful for the liberation extended to him by mary on her accession and averse from all schemes for disturbing her government and that the queen's marriage had served to banish from her mind some former grounds of displeasure against him. Nothing but a union with Elizabeth could at this time have rendered him formidable, and it was easy to guard effectually against the accomplishment of any such design, without the odious measure of detaining the earl in perpetual imprisonment at Fotheringay Castle, whither he had been already removed from the tower. After all, it was but the shadow of liberty which he was permitted to enjoy, and he found himself so beset with spies and suspicion that a very few months after his release he requested and obtained the royal license to travel. Proceeding into Italy, he shortly after ended at Padua his blameless and unfortunate career. Popular fame attributed his early death to poison administered by the imperialists, but probably, as in a multitude of similar cases, on no sufficient authority. As to Elizabeth, certain writers have ascribed Philip's protection of her at this juncture to the following deduction of consequences, that if she were taken off, and if the Queen should die childless, England would become the inheritance of the Queen of Scots, now betrothed to the Dauphin, and thus go to augment the power of France, already the most formidable rival of the Spanish monarchy. Admitting, however, that such a calculation of remote contingencies might not be too refined to act upon the politic brain of Philip, it is yet plainly absurd to suppose that the life or death of Elizabeth was at this time at all the matter in question. Secret assassination does not appear to have been so much as dreamed of, and mary and her council even supposing them to have been sufficiently wicked were certainly not audacious enough to think of bringing to the scaffold without form of trial without even a plausible accusation the immediate heiress of the crown and the hope and favorite of the nation the only question must now have been what degree of liberty it would be advisable to allow her and a due consideration of the facts that she had already been removed from the tower and that after her second release that namely from woodstock she was never to the end of the reign permitted to reside in a house of her own without an inspector of her conduct will reduce within very moderate limits the vaunted claims of philip to her lasting gratitude the project of marrying the princess to the duke of savoy had doubtless originated with the spanish court and it was still persisted in by philip from the double motive of providing for the head of the protestant party in england a kind of honourable exile and of attaching to himself by the gift of her hand a young princess whom he favoured and destined to high employments in his service. But as severity had already been tried in vain to bring Elizabeth to compliance on this point, it seems now to have been determined to make experiment of opposite measures. The Duke of Savoy, who had attended Philip to England, was still in the country, and as he was in the prime of life and a man of merit and talents, it appeared not unreasonable to hope that a personal interview might incline the princess to lend a more propitious ear to his suit to this consideration then we are probably to ascribe the invitation which admitted elizabeth to share in the festivals of a christmas celebrated by philip and mary at hampton court with great magnificence and which must have been that of the year fifteen fifty four because this is well known to have been the only one passed by the spanish prince in england a contemporary chronicle still preserved amongst the manuscripts of the british museum furnishes several particulars of her entertainment on christmas eve the great hall of the palace being illuminated with a thousand lamps artificially disposed, the king and queen supped in it, the princess being seated at the same table next to the cloth of estate. After supper she was served with a perfumed napkin and a plate of confects by Lord Paget, but retired to her ladies before the revels, masking, and disguisings began. On St. Stephen's Day she heard matins in the queen's closet adjoining to the chapel, where she was attired in a robe of white satin strung all over with large pearls and on december the twenty ninth she sat with their majesties and the nobility at a grand spectacle of jousting when two hundred spears were broken by combatants of whom half were accoutred in the elmaine and half in the spanish fashion how soon the princess again exchanged the splendors of a court for the melancholy monotony of woodstock does not appear from this document nor from any other with which i am acquainted but several circumstances make it clear that we ought to place about this period an incident recorded by Hollinshed, and vaguely stated to have occurred soon after quote, the stir of Wyatt end quote, and the troubles of Elizabeth for that cause. A servant of the princesses had summoned a person before the magistrates for having mentioned his lady by the contumelious appellation of a jill and having made use of other disparaging language respecting her. Was it to be endured? Asked the accuser that a low fellow like this should speak of her grace thus insolently when the greatest personages in the land treated her with every mark of respect he added quote, "i saw yesterday in the court that my lord cardinal pole meeting her in the chamber of presence kneeled down on his knee and kissed her hand and i saw also that king philip meeting her made such obeisance that his knee touched the ground" End quote. if this story be correct which is not indeed vouched by the chronicler but which seems to bear internal evidence of genuineness it will go far to prove that the situation of Elizabeth during her abode at Woodstock was by no means that opprobrious captivity which it has usually been represented. She visited the court, it appears, occasionally, perhaps frequently, and was greeted in public by the King himself with every demonstration of civility and respect. Demonstrations which, whether accompanied or not by the corresponding sentiments, would surely suffice to protect her from all harsh or insolent treatment, on the part of those to whom the immediate superintendence of her actions was committed. Her enemies, however, were still numerous and powerful, and it is certain that she found no advocate in the heart of her sister. That able, though thoroughly profligate, politician Lord Paget, notwithstanding his serving the princess with quote, unquote, confects, is reported to have said that the Queen would never have peace in the country till her head were smitten off, and Gardiner never ceased to look upon her with an evil eye. Lord Williams, it seems, had made suit that he might be permitted to take her from Woodstock to his own home, giving large bail for her safe-keeping. And as he was a known Catholic and much in favor, it was supposed at first that his petition would be heard. But by some secret influence, the mind of Mary was indisposed to the granting of this indulgence, and the proposal was dropped. But the Spanish counsellors who attended their prince never ceased, we are told, to persuade him, quote, that the like honour he should never obtain as he should in delivering the Lady Elizabeth, quote, out of her confinement, and Philip, who was now labouring earnestly at the design which he had entertained ever since his marriage of procuring himself to be crowned King of England, was himself aware of the necessity of previously softening the prejudices of the nation by some act of conspicuous popularity. He renewed, therefore, his solicitations on this point with a zeal which rendered them effectual. The moment, indeed, was favourable. Mary, who now believed herself far advanced in pregnancy, was too happy in her hopes to remain inflexible to the entreaties of her husband, and the Privy Council, in their sanguine expectations of an heir, viewed the princess as less than formerly an object of political jealousy. And thus, by a contrariety of cause and effect by no means rare in the complicated system of human affairs, Elizabeth became indebted for present tranquillity and comparative freedom, to the concurrence of projects and expectations the most fatal to all her hopes of future greatness about the end of april fifteen fifty five the princess took at length her final departure from woodstock and proceeded but still under the escort of beddingfield and his men to hampton court at coinbrook she was met by her own gentlemen and yeomen to the number of sixty Quote, much says john fox to all their comforts which had not seen her of long season before notwithstanding they were immediately commanded in the queen's name to depart the town and she not suffered once to speak to them the next day she reached hampton court and was ushered into the prince's lodgings but the doors were closed upon her and guarded as at woodstock and it was a fortnight according to the martyrologist before any one had recourse to her at the end of this time she was solaced by a visit from lord william howard son of the old duke of norfolk and first cousin to her mother who quote, very honourably used her end quote, and through whom she requested to speak to some of the privy council several of its members waited upon her in consequence and gardiner among the rest who quote, humbled himself before her with all humility end quote, but nevertheless seized the opportunity to urge her once more to make submission to the queen as a necessary preliminary to the obtaining of her favor elizabeth with that firmness and wisdom which had never in her severest trials forsaken her declared that rather than do so she would lie in prison all the days of her life adding that she craved no mercy at her majesty's hand but rather the law if ever she did offend her in thought word or deed Quote, and besides this said she in yielding I should speak against myself and confess myself an offender, by occasion of which the King and Queen might ever after conceive of me in ill opinion. And it were better for me to lie in prison for the truth than to be abroad and suspected of my Prince." The counsellors now departed, promising to deliver her message to the Queen. The next day Gardiner waited upon her again, and told her that Her Majesty, quote, marvelled she would so stoutly carry herself denying to have offended,' so that it should seem the queen had wrongfully imprisoned her grace end quote, and that she must tell another tale ere she had her liberty the lady elizabeth declared she would stand to her former resolution for she would never belie herself quote, then said the bishop your grace hath the vantage of me and the other counsellors for your long and wrong imprisonment end quote. she took god to witness that she sought no vantage against them for their so dealing with her Gardiner and the rest then kneeled desiring that all might be forgotten, and so departed, she being locked up again. About a week after the failure of this last effort of her crafty enemy to extort some concession which might afterwards be employed to criminate her or justify himself, she received a sudden summons from the Queen, and was conducted by torchlight to the royal apartments. Mary received her in her chamber, to which she had now confined herself in expectation of that joyful event which was destined never to arrive the princess on entering kneeled down and protested herself a true and loyal subject adding that she did not doubt that her majesty would one day find her to be such whatever different report had gone of her the queen expressed at first some dissatisfaction at her still persisting so strongly in her assertions of innocence thinking that she might take occasion to inveigh against her imprisonment as the act of injustice and oppression which in truth it was but on her sister's replying in a submissive manner that it was her business to bear what the queen was pleased to inflict and that she should make no complaints she appears to have been appeased fox's account however is that they parted with few comfortable words of the queen in english but what she said in spanish was not known that it was thought that king philip was there behind a cloth and not seen and that he showed himself quote, unquote, a very friend in this business from other accounts we learn that elizabeth scrupled not the attempt to ingratiate herself with mary at this interview by requesting that her majesty would be pleased to send her some catholic tractates for confirmation of her faith and to counteract the doctrines which she had imbibed from the works of the reformers mary showed herself somewhat distrustful of her professions on this point but dismissed her at length with tokens of kindness she put upon her finger as a pledge of amity a ring worth seven hundred crowns mentioned that sir thomas pope was again appointed to reside with her and observing that he was already well known to her sister, commended him as a person whose prudence, humanity, and other estimable qualities were calculated to render her new situation perfectly agreeable. To what place the princess was first conveyed from this audience does not appear, but it must have been to one of the royal seats in the neighbourhood of London, to several of which she was successively removed during some time, after which she was permitted to establish herself permanently at the palace of Hatfield in Hertfordshire from this auspicious interview the termination of her prisoner state may be dated henceforth she was released from the formidable parade of guards and keepers no doors were closed no locks were turned upon her and though her place of residence was still prescribed and could not apparently be changed by her at pleasure she was treated in all respects as at home and mistress of her actions sir thomas pope was a man of worth and a gentleman and such were the tenderness and discretion with which he exercised the delicate trust reposed in him that the princess must soon have learned to regard him in the light of a real friend. It is not a little remarkable, at the same time, that the person selected by Mary to receive so distinguished a proof of her confidence should have made his first appearance in public life as the active assistant of Cromwell in the great work of the destruction of monasteries, and that from grants of abbey-lands, which the queen esteemed it sacrilege to touch, he had derived the whole of that wealth of which he was now employing a considerable portion in the foundation of Trinity College, Oxford but sir thomas pope even in the execution of the arbitrary and rapacious mandates of henry had been advantageously distinguished amongst his colleagues by the qualities of mildness and integrity and the circumstance of his having obtained a seat at the council-board of mary from the very commencement of her reign proves him to have acquired some peculiar merits in her eyes certain it is however that a furious zeal whether real or pretended for the romish faith was not amongst his courtly arts for though strictly enjoined to watch over the due performance and attendance of mass in the family of the princess he connived at her retaining about her person many servants who were earnest protestants this circumstance unfortunately reached the vigilant ears of gardiner and it was to a last expiring effort of his indefatigable malice that elizabeth owed the mortification of seeing two gentlemen from the queen arrive at Lammer. A house in hertfordshire which she then occupied who carried away her favourite mrs ashley and three of her maids of honour and lodged them in the tower isabella markham afterwards the wife of that sir john harrington whose sufferings in the princess's service had been already adverted to was doubtless one of these unfortunate ladies elizabeth highly to her honour never dismissed from remembrance the claims of such as had been faithful to her in her adversity she distinguished this worthy pair by many tokens of her royal favour stood godfather to their son and admitted him from his tenderest youth to a degree of affectionate intimacy little inferior to that in which she indulged the best beloved of her own relations in the beginning of september fifteen fifty five king philip mortified by the refusal of his coronation in which the parliament with steady patriotism persisted disappointed in his hopes of an heir and disgusted by the fondness and the jealousy of a spouse devoid of every attraction personal and mental quitted england for the continent and deigned not to revisit it during a year and a half. Elizabeth might regret his absence as depriving her of the personal attentions of a powerful protector, but late events had so firmly established her as next heir to the crown that she was now perfectly secure against the recurrence of any attempt to degrade her from her proper station, and her reconciliation with the queen, whether cordial or not, obtained for her occasional admission to the courtly circle. A few days after the king's departure we find it mentioned that, quote, the queen's grace, the lady Elizabeth, and all the court did fast from flesh to qualify them to take the pope's jubilee and pardon granted to all out of his abundant clemency end quote. a trait which makes it probable that Mary was now in the habit of exacting her sister's attendance at court for the purpose of witnessing with her own eyes her punctual observance of the rites of that church to which she still believed her a reluctant conformist. A few weeks afterwards the death of her capital enemy, Gardiner, removed the worst of the ill instruments who had interposed to aggravate the suspicions of the Queen, and there was reason to believe that the princess found in various ways the beneficial effects of this event end of chapter seven end of Section ten